If you have your Bible with you, I want, I want you to just turn back to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. I want you to look with me, if you will, in chapter 3. Last week, we started off with the text from verses 14 and following, the one that you have on the front of your bulletin. And the reason for that is because of that phrase that I highlighted there. To him that is God be glory in the what? In the church and in Christ Jesus. And so we're in a sermon series now on the church, the doctrine of the church. The formal classification is the doctrine of ecclesiology, coming from the Greek word that we learned in the first sermon, ecclesia, that Greek word is then translated into our English Bibles, every place as the word church. And that word means assembly. It is an assembly of the people of God. And to be a part of the church is the most significant group of people to be a part of and to be in fellowship with and all of the world. It's so important that... As we mentioned from the book of James, when it says that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth, holding up the truth. And so we've pointed to these different passages that seems to highlight the significance of the church. But if you look in chapter 3, the the context above where we started in chapter 3, verse 7 and following, you'll find another passage that highlights the significance and the meaning of the church. Look at verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. This is the Apostle Paul, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. What? What grace? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And here is the phrase. Listen to this wonderful phrase. So that, so the, the goal of him preaching this mystery that has been hidden with God in Christ and is now manifested through this proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities and the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What was that God would display his manifold wisdom through the church. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And so this is just another text. And by the way, we will come back to this in an exposition later on. Okay. So just like we did Matthew, I sprung from Matthew 16. And then we came back to Matthew and we unpacked that text. This is going to be the same kind as well. I'm going to spring from this this morning to continue from last week and then... Lord willing, we'll come back to this particular passage with an exposition. So let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. 
Our God, our Father in heaven, we bow before you with humble hearts and desirous hearts, Lord, longing for you to come in power. Oh God, we admit today our weakness and inability. We admit today our sinfulness and we pray that through Christ you would hear our pleas for mercy and for grace to shape us and mold us and teach us and change us. Lord, that we might be a clearer reflection of you, both to one another within the church and to those outside of the church. Oh God, we pray that you would take what you have revealed in your word today and do a work that only you can do. That internal work that changes us. Do it for your mercy's sake, for your glory, for your honor. For the glory of Christ in whose name we pray. And amen. Amen. Well, last week I started a sermon. I actually anticipated preaching that sermon in full last week, one setting. But that didn't happen. We actually got through one point of the message, which all of you that are grinning back at me, you're saying, well, we knew that. So, But anyway, this is part two. And the reason, and it may go faster, I have no desire uh, or, or limitation on the way that it's going to go, but the the idea was to preach these four attributes in one sermon. It may wind up being four, who knows? We make it through the rest of them this morning, then praise God, we'll move on next week. But if not, you'll know exactly where we are headed. The attributes of the church or the characteristics of the church. The first message we preached was on the idea and the nature of the church. We went from Matthew 16. We looked at that. We also looked at some of the various analogies that help us to understand the nature of the church. Like, for example, the church is called the body of Christ. And what, what that means and what that should, how that should impact us as we gather. So you have the body of Christ. The church is also called the bride of Christ. So the church should be like a bride that's kind of, you think of a, your spouse is gone on a, on a trip and you're waiting and anticipating his return or your spouse, her return. And there's this anticipation, there's this longing and love that, that's going on there. That, that's kind of what it is in the church. The church is the bride of Christ and Jesus is coming back and we should be anticipating his soon return. Every day we should be living with anticipation. I want you to come. I'm longing for you to come. I want to see you. So the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. We also talked about the household of God, like a temple of God. You are the temple. And in one place it's talking about the individual Christian. And another place it's talking about the collective church. The church is the temple. The church is the place, the dwelling place of God. And so we learn from those things. Now last week we started this idea of the attributes of the characteristics of the church. And we reached way back into the fourth century. And you can go online to our website and listen to last week. But we started with the Council of Constantinople in 381 A.D. And the result of that 
collective gathering of the religious leaders, the church leaders and bishops in that day, was this belief that Christians believe in, quote, one holy universal apostolic church. And so I use that as the basis for this sermon. And what we want to do is look and see that these abiding attributes, characteristics of the church have withstood the test of time for one reason, because they are biblical, because they're biblical. And so last week we looked at that first one, the oneness, the unity of the church. The church should be described as unified, as being characterized by oneness. And I've asked you the question before we ever got started, how would you describe the church? If you were talking to a friend and you were inviting a friend to church, what would be some of the things that you would say? Well, we'd like to invite you to our church Our church is, (laughs) what characteristics, what um, adjectives would you use? And unfortunately for us, I think that you noticed it with me, that as we thought through these things, typically the response and the answer that we would give is based on programs, personalities, and some form of a stylistic answer. Right? Like, our church is formal. Our church is informal. Our church is contemporary. Our church is traditional. Our church is very loud and energetic. Our church is very sober and uh, contemplative, maybe. We tend to think of church, and when we describe the church, when we describe it, that's the kind of go-to statements that I hear constantly. We have a good preacher. We have a good youth group. We have a nice facility. We have these programs. And we tend to be looking and people are looking, you know, and I want to assess this church and see if it's a good one or not. Those are the types of things that so often people are looking for. And it's not that programs in and of themselves are inherently evil. But it's just the fact that when we go to describe the church, you very, very, very seldom, if ever, hear people using biblical characteristics or adjectives like oneness, holiness, universality, and apostolic. So... If we were to look into the scriptures, we would have to say that we are missing the mark. If our idea of the description of a description of the church is to describe the personalities within, to describe the programs within, to describe the style of the church or the decor of the church, we would be missing the mark. When it comes to finding the biblical adjectives that should describe the nature and the characteristics of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So oneness you can listen to last week. I'll simply give you a couple of scriptures and we'll move on to the second one. 
The church is to be one. Why? Because God is one. We have, there is a triune God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's not three gods. There's one God who is, has expressed himself in Scripture as in three persons. They are co-equal in essence. And if you go back a little bit farther in church history and you go back to the uh, Council of Nicaea, you'll find that it was all about the deity of Christ. And they use this Greek phrase, homoousios, which means of the same substance. God the Father and God the Son. So we are, as a church, the church is to be one because God is one. Not only in the Trinity being equal uh, in essence and power and glory, but in the reality that he is not divided. God is not divided and therefore the church should be characterized by oneness. Now, remember what we said last week, that all of these attributes in one way or another are reflective of our Heavenly Father. They are to be a reflection of the characteristic of our God. In Acts chapter 4 verse 32, for example, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. So if you were giving a description today, was is that the way you would describe your church? <laughs> and just folks, very seldom would you ever hear that. Oh man, it's like one heart and one soul over there. Well, that's the way that Luke in Acts chapter 4 describes the New Testament church there, the, there in Jerusalem. The full number of them believed were one heart and one soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in chapter 4 and verses 4 through 6. And remember, seven times he uses the word one in these verses. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The church is to be characterized by unity and oneness. First Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, we went back and looked at that from First Corinthians chapter 1. And he says the basis of the unity of the church is based on their unity with Christ. We looked in the book of Galatians chapter 3 verses 27 and 28 and we discovered that there should be ethnic diversity within the body of Christ. And I made this big grand thing and you can go back and listen to it about how there should be um, generational diversity and there should be ethnic diversity within the body of Christ representing that area. So the area of Princeton is ethnically diverse to whatever degree it is. And I'm saying that as people are being saved into the universal church, into the body of Christ, a part of the bride of Christ, the local church should be an expression of that ethnic diversity. And the church should be an expression of, should be characterized by generational diversity as well. We have young people in here today. We have older people in here today. That's exactly the way that it should be. Now, see, I know that cuts to the heart of a lot of church growth strategies today. I went up to Scott Depot for this training, and I I was taught that I had to have a focus group if I was gonna if I was gonna succeed. I had to narrow it down, you know, to to a soccer mom or whatever, you know. And 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 I understand those kinds of man-made strategies and why you're trying to do it, but we need to understand that the church, when we look at it in the scriptures, should be 
should be ethnically and generationally diverse. We should not just have, you know, that's the old people's church and that's the young people's church. Because that's not the way it is in heaven. It's not the way it's going to be in eternity. And it's not really the way it is now. If you're an 18-year-old, born-again, blood-bought believer, Christian, and you're a 75-year-old Christian, there's no difference in the body of Christ. Listen, both of the the 18 and the 75-year-old are equally important to the body of Christ. They, each one provides something as a member of the body, whether it be a finger or an arm or an elbow or an eye or an ear, each one provides something that is necessary for the building up of the entire body of Christ. And I think we make a tragic mistake in isolating, whether it be ethnic isolation or generational isolation. And if you're really scared at this point, I'm not saying that you should never, you know, have a uh, a high school Bible study class or do something ministry-wise to students or, or to children or to elderly people. I understand those kind of ministries should exist. But we have to strive to reflect the biblical characteristics or attributes of the church. And in the church, there should be ethnic and generational diversity if we are to be one in Christ, showing this distinction. And by the way, in our text from the book of Ephesians chapter 3, that's exactly what he's talking about. The mystery is the fact that the Gentiles are going to be a part of the church, the people of God, just like Israel, the people of Israel. And so this this manifold wisdom of God is revealed in the church precisely because of the diversity of people that make up this group of people, the church. Okay. Now, another key thing that I want to reach back from last week because it applies to this week as well. And I said it applies to all of them. These attributes, these characteristics, they are both positionally purchased and personally, corporately pursued. Okay. So, in other words, the whole, the, the unity, the unity of the church is a purchased spiritual reality. So, when Jesus died on the cross, and then in, in, in John chapter 17, when Jesus prayed, remember? And he prayed in that high priestly pr- prayer. It's hard to say. Say that real fast. High priestly prayer. He prayed that we would be one as he and the Father were one. Remember that? When Jesus died on the cross, the Holy Spirit came on the, the day of Pentecost, he purchased this unity, which is a spiritual reality. It is, a, it is a fact. If you are a part of the church, the true church, you are one with Christ and thereby, therefore, one with each other in that body. And yet, it is also something to which we must experientially, to which we should experientially pursue. We are one in Christ, experientially and practically, we should seek to live that out. You are one in Christ, 
So practically, corporately, collectively, congregationally, we should seek to live that out. By pursuing prayerfully, humbly, passionately to be a unified people. Okay, that's like recap from last week. The second one is holy. The church is to be characterized by holiness. The attribute of holiness or characteristic of holiness. And again, just like with oneness, the church is to be holy. Why? Because God is holy. It's exactly what the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, and the Apostle Peter picks that up. Same language in the New Testament as we'll see in just a moment. So we are to be holy because God is holy. And the church, listen, is a reflection of our God. The church should be a reflection. The Christian should be a reflection of the Heavenly Father. And the church should be a, a reflection of the Heavenly Father. I went back and, and, and gave you an illustration about a dad or a mom and children. Children often look and act like their parents. Even if they don't try to. Mannerisms, attitudes, beliefs, actions. All because spend so much time with mom and dad. It's the same way, folks, in the spiritual reality. We are to be a reflection of our Heavenly Father. And if an individual Christian is a reflection of, to, to one degree or the other, of the Heavenly Father, then when you congregate these individual Christians together, then that church will be a reflection of God. And that's exactly what we are to do. We are to be a reflection of the character of God. And we're to pursue that. So, in Leviticus, in the Old Testament, chapter 11... Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 and 45. Listen to what the Bible says. Leviticus eleven forty-four. For I am, this is God speaking, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, separate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. That's the Old Testament people of God. Be holy, for I am holy. And by the way, we, we have to see the parallel between God coming to a people that are enslaved in Egypt and delivering them and then saying, now you're delivered, live like these free, freed Children, people of God, and it's the same way in the New Testament. Jesus, God, sends the Son, the Son comes, dies in our place, pursues the sinner so that now He can free us from the shackles, the oppression, and the slavery to sin, and free us to live as children of God. And one of the ways that we're to do that is in our personal holiness. Leviticus 19, verse 2. Leviticus 19 and verse 2 says this. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 7. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am, for I am the Lord your God. Are you picking up on the pattern so far? This is amazing to me. Now, 1 Peter chapter 1, the Apostle Peter picks up on this same language. Listen to this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. He says, As obedient children, 
You're a child of the Heavenly Father, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But, what's the alternative? But, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Direct quote from the Old Testament. That's, That's remarkable. You know why it's remarkable? Because we're not under the law as the church. And yet he can go back and use that language and say, listen, we are to be a reflection of our Heavenly Father. We are to live in a manner that reflects the character of God. And so with holiness, the same way with oneness, it is both a positional, listen, you might want to write this down. It is both a positional reality and it is a progressive reality process <laughs> it is a positional reality in other words let's think about that for just a moment positional holiness when jesus died on the cross he died in such a way that those who believe on him and trust in him and that what he did what he accomplished that his righteousness His perfect obedience in his life would be accounted, attributed, and placed upon the account of the believer. In other words, when we are saved, we receive the righteousness of Christ. Look, if you will, in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. Look at what, listen listen to what uh, Paul writes to this church about the righteousness of Christ. He says, look out for dogs. <laughs> look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. In other words, they were the outward conformists. They do all the outward stuff that they're required to do, but their hearts are dead spiritually. That's who they are. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. I'm talking to you this morning about positional holiness. The fact that Jesus Christ has purchased for you holiness. Positionally. You are holy by the work of Christ. Okay, he goes on. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. So if you want to stack up the credits, I, I, can, I can beat you. I can, I can trump you. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, he's not talking about his skin. He's talking about what he did in the body, his conduct. Talking about what he did according to the law. He says, he says, if you think you have reason for confidence, I have more than in verse five. Circumcised the eighth day, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal persecuted the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But, so all of that's on one side. What's on the other side? But, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And listen to this. And be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's positional holiness. You have received a foreign righteousness that is actually the righteousness of your Savior that is placed upon your account so that you are considered righteous in the sight of God, not because of your personal performance, but because of the performance of Christ. So it was purchased for you on the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2. 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 2, listen to this. Listen to how he talks to the church. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. That's past tense. Sanctified. Sanctified when? On the cross. So you either believe that the cross accomplished something, or you believe that the cross accomplished a possibility. You're either in one or two camps. I believe that the cross accomplished something definite and effectual. (laughs) He didn't die so that something might happen. He died to do something definitely. And so he can use this kind of language to those who are sanctified, which is a part of the idea of holiness being set apart to those who were sanctified, set apart in Christ Jesus. You're set apart. Why? You're sanctified because you're in Christ. If you're outside of Christ, evidently you're not sanctified, past tense. But if you're in Christ or will become in Christ, then you are part of that past tense word sanctified. Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. So that's positional holiness. You don't work for that. You, you trust Christ for that. Paul goes on to write, By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in the sight of God. Things like that are talking about this idea of positional holiness. Now what do I mean by progressive holiness? Positional? Now let's think about progressive holiness in life and action. You notice in the very verses that we have already read together from 1 Peter. As obedient children do not be conformed to the former passions. Don't go back and live the way that you used to live in unbelief and spiritual deadness. No. He who called you is holy and now you are filled and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So he says as obedient children you are to be holy in what? In all of your conduct. Remember? We just read that from 1 Peter chapter 1. 14 to 16. So we are told in one place that we receive this positional holiness in the sight of God because Jesus Christ purchased it for us on the cross. And in another text, we are clearly instructed to pursue personal holiness and righteousness in our everyday lives. It's the same thing as oneness. Are you following me? (laughs) You are one. Now you need to seek to 
Be one in the way that you live and act in the church. You are holy unto the Lord. You have been bought with a price. You are purchased by the blood of Christ. You are sealed with the down payment of the Holy Spirit of God. Now you are to live in a way that is in unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You are now to live in a way that reflects the holiness and the righteousness of God. So Christ's holiness, God's holiness, is reflected in the church's holiness. The opposite of that would certainly be that the church minimizes sin. You ever heard of a church doing that these days? (laughs) We just, you know, it's just kind of super spiritual cool if you just admit that you're you know, that you're messed up and you are messed up and we are messed up. But is that to be the characteristic that we display as the church? That we are just living in sin? No, it is not the characteristic of the church. The characteristic of the church that we are both positionally possessors of and that we are to steadily, prayerfully, albeit imperfect as we do, pursue in everyday life and conduct. Look, look with me in the book of Ephesians again, chapter 5. I told you, some of these messages in this series on the church is going to be expositional, which means we take a text and unpack the very contents of that text. And other messages in this series on the church will be topical. And this is one of the topical ones. So we're going in all of these different passages to see what the Bible says. Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 25 to 27. This is what Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit. Ephesians 5.25 says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why did he do that? Why did Jesus give himself up for the church when he died on the cross? Well, praise God, he gives us the answer in the very next words. To, or in order to, so this is the effect of him giving himself up. In order to make her what? You read it. Sanctify. My (laughs) uh, different translations here coming out. It's fine. Same word. Mine says holy. I'm using the ESV. To make her holy or sanctified, set apart unto God, to God, with God, for God. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to and to. So this is still part of the effect of the cross. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. But holy and blameless. Jesus gave himself up for the church, his bride, to produce that. Okay? To produce that. But, experientially, day to day, do you feel that you have achieved that kind of holiness? (laughs) Do you feel you're living there at moment by moment? I bet you some of you couldn't even get ready for church today. (laughs) without in some way or another experiencing the nature of sin that you possess. I did. Y'all saw the frantic pastor coming in late. We all have a nature of sin. But this is what Jesus died to accomplish. 
Surely none of you would say Jesus will not accomplish what he sought to accomplish on the cross. Certainly he did give himself up and loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. And the work of Christ even today is taking these redeemed people and ironing out wrinkles and cleansing blemishes. The process of discipleship, the process of growing progressively in personal holiness is a process of ironing out wrinkles and cleansing spots. It is to be both understood as a purchased reality and it is to be pursued in personal life and conduct. Now, why are you set apart? Why are you holy unto the Lord? Can I suggest to you this morning that you are separated, set apart, and made holy unto God to serve? So you could write that little phrase down. might be helpful for you. Separated to serve. Both the Old and the New Testaments express the reality of the truth that the covenant people of God are separated unto God For his purposes and for his glory. To accomplish the service to which they were called. Listen to this quote from Deuteronomy 14 verse 2. Deuteronomy chapter 14 verse 2. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You are. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the people's. Who were on the face of the earth. This was the Old Testament. The Old Covenant people of God. Now turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now still talking about progressive sanctification. Growing in Christ likeness. Growing in the nature of Christ. I'm not going to, I want you to go home and I want you to read 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. And I'm going to point out what it, what the thrust of it is saying to drive home this point. Namely this. The, the church at Corinth was that, was the type of church like I was trying to describe to you earlier. They had sin within the camp, so to speak. But rather than dealing with that out of a love for God... And his honor and glory in the world. And out of a love for the individuals that were involved in sin. They were actually boasting. Because they were tolerant of it. They were saying, oh man, look at how good we are. We're not, we're not doing a thing about this sin within the local church. You can see it in verse 1. It's reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. (laughs) The unbelieving pagan pagan world does not do what is being practiced in your church. And do you think that Paul goes on to commend them? No. And he does not say, well, you all are positionally holy under the Lord. So all of that doesn't matter. He doesn't do that either. The Apostle Paul would say, yes, you are. If you're a part of the blood born again, people of God, you're a part of the church. You are a Christian. 
you're, you're a true believer, then you are holy <laughs> and you are righteous and you are one in Christ. But that does not neglect the fact that you need to pursue personal holiness in your life. That's what, that's what he's saying to this church. Listen to what he says in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. <laughs> Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Listen to this next phrase. You read it. As you really are. See what I'm saying? You are unleavened. <laughs> now live like that. Is that not what he's saying? Let me read it again. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. As you really are unleavened. And then if you're, if you're thinking, well, what does that mean? Does that mean practically and experientially I am? No. Look at the very next words. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you not in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. And then he goes on in chapter 6, um, talking about how when you have a grievance against each other, what is all this talking about? Practical holiness. Practical, experiential, personal holiness in conduct. That's what he's talking about. So we have it positionally, we are to pursue it personally. In life. Let me give you one more great New Testament text on this idea. Second Corinthians chapter six. And I promise this is the last text. Second Corinthians chapter six. <laughs> Don't be laughing at me. Second Corinthians, this, this is the last one. This this is a classic right here. And and I love how we can just you know justify the fact that we want to do something we're not supposed to do when we just clearly Ignore explicit teaching in Scripture. And this one is classically ignored. So two things we need to do. We need to go out of this room today praising God that in Christ we are one. And in Christ we are holy. Set apart to the Lord with a perfect righteousness that has been purchased for us. And we need to go out of this room passionately, prayerfully, humbly, stumbling all the way. We need to pursue Unity in the body of Christ and holiness in life and holiness as a church. Second Corinthians six, fourteen. I didn't say how short this passage was going to be. Second <laughs> Corinthians six fourteen and following. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Okay, here comes all of the rhetorical questions that have one answer for each one of them intended. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Answer, none. What fellowship has light with darkness? None. What accord is Christ with Belial? None. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever or an infidel? None. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? None. For we will be, 
We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, see it? You are, now go do. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Chapter 7, verse 1. Listen to this. This is not a new thought. This is a continuation of the previous thoughts. Chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us what? <laughs> let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You are one in Christ. Now pursue unity in life. Now, I didn't say this before, but I did say it last week, that unity revolves around biblical truth. Never forget that. <laughs> you, you don't throw biblical truth out the window so you can be more, quote, unified. You don't do that. The unity that we have is the unity of the truth. Now pursue it in practical life. And remember I gave you this scenario. Like if a person was sinning and uh, causing a stink at the church. We might go to that person or go to that person. Maybe even get on your knees if you need to. And say for the sake of the unity of the church. The oneness that we're reflecting to an onlooking world. Don't do this. Don't divide this church. So live it out. Pursue it. You are holy. Now act like it. You are holy to the Lord. You are the, if you are the Lord, you are the Lord's purchased possession. You always will be. Now live like you are. In everyday life. It's where the rubber meets the road. It's a little bit hard sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> This old nature of sin. Paul says, ah, oh, I want to do this, but I don't do it. And what I want to do, I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who's going to deliver me from the body of this death? Answer. Give me time to do my rhetorical thing. <laughs> Answer. Is Jesus. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. But what I was going to say is you don't fill in that blank by saying, have yourself a good old-fashioned pep rally and go out and do better tomorrow. It's not what he says. He says, this internal struggle with sin, my victory is in Jesus Christ. And that's where your victory will be. The way you get saved, Sunday school class, is the way you live the Christian life. You get saved by believing on Jesus Christ, what he accomplished on the cross of Calvary for you. <laughs> And the way, the way that you pursue holiness in life, step by step, action by action, attitude by attitude, is not by trying to drum up more energy within yourself, but look away from yourself to Christ for strength and power and ability. And you can do it. You can do it. Let's pray together.
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to gather as the church, this little assembly, this little portion of the harvest field, this little place, this little group, this little flock that you've brought together, diverse as we are. God, we thank you for each and every one that's here today. We pray that we will all hear the word and be doers of it. Not by the strength that we can muster up, but by the strength that you supply so that in all things you may be glorified in Christ Jesus. Oh God, we pray that we would be able to increasingly commend this flock, this local church to others in in our invitations by being able to describe it as a place of unity and holiness. And Lord, if there's one here today that is lost or walked in this room lost and undone, God, we want to pray for them in a special way, Lord, that you would take the truth of the gospel, the accomplishment of Christ on the cross of Calvary, and compel them to come. Draw them with the cords of your love, the power of your spirit, to repent and turn away from sin. Turn away from self-righteousness and personal performance and to trust in Christ alone. So that they today, maybe, today can leave this place a child of the living God. Leave this place today a part of the church, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the dwelling place of the eternal, invisible, immortal God. So help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, and amen. Amen.